hot, hasn't it? Been hot here, it's been hot out in the Central Valley, it's been hot in the Midwest as well. You say, how hot has it been? Thank you very much, I appreciate that. How hot has it been? I heard that Campbell Soup was going to change the directions on the can. It's just going to say, pour and eat. <laughs> if you're out on the, the farm working, all you have to do is reach down, pull a potato out of the ground, split it open, put butter on it. It's ready to go. That's how hot it's been. You say, how hot is it? i tell you how hot it is. The cows are giving evaporated milk. <laughs> the chickens are laying hard-boiled eggs. The trees are whistling for the dogs to come. I mean, that's hot, friends. It is hot, enough of that. It's getting hot under these lights. Today we are going to talk about truth or consequences and think about how we can know what the Bible means. I invite you to open your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, a familiar text to readers of the Word of God. 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. The Bible is God's truth. What God says is truth. And so someone says, well, why are there then so many interpretations of the Bible? How can the Bible be the truth of God when there are so many disagreements about it? fact is, the Bible, like most other books or speeches or whatever, can be made to say whatever a person wants it to say in certain circumstances. And so it brings us to a very important question. How do you know what the Bible means? The verse here in 2 Timothy chapter 2 says that we need to be careful. We need to be diligent. As the King James says, we need to study to present ourselves to God as workmen who are approved and not ashamed. How do we do that? Well, he says, by correctly handling the word of truth, the Bible. Correctly handling it. The verb that is involved there is a, a picture. It is a picture of the people who in the Bibles, when it was written, in that day, made tents. And when they would make tents, they would, they would cut the cloth or the leather. And when they had finished cutting it, it all had to fit together. You ladies understand this. If you're going to make a dress, did you know that ladies used to do that? They used to do their own sewing? Yes, yeah, some of you still do, as a matter of fact. And when you have finished with that pattern, you put the pieces together so it fits. The word here means cutting the word of truth straight. That is, when you handle the word of God, cut it, deal with it, handle it in such a way that it all fits together. You and I have a teacher to help us. 
We who are believers in Jesus Christ have the Holy Spirit who lives within us, a resident tutor in the Word of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse, verses 9 through 12, it says, However it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him, a quotation from the Old Testament. But down in verse 12 it goes on to say, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. One of the reasons that God has given us the Holy Spirit is so that we can understand this book that He has written. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 27, it says, as for you, the anointing you received from Him remains in you. The anointing refers to the Holy Spirit. And you do not need anyone to teach you, but as His anointing teaches you about all things. Notice that. His anointing teaches you about all things. And so each of us has a personal tutor so that we can understand the things of God. It is the Holy Spirit who lives within us. And yet there are many different understandings of the Bible. Among believers, there are different understandings of the Bible. There are also critics of the Bible. There are people who attack the Bible, who say that the Bible is filled with inconsistencies and contradictions. Dr. Rick Cornish, in his fine book, The Five-Minute Apologist, says that uh, there are some common mistakes of those who criticize the Bible. I only have time this morning to go through them, not to illustrate them. But number one, they assume that what they cannot explain cannot be explained. And that's false. For only a, a tenth of one percent of the con so-called contradictions of the Bible do we have difficulty coming up with a plausible explanation? But there are critics of the Bible who say, well, I can't explain it, therefore this is uh, a mystery and it cannot be understood. False. Somebody can explain it. Secondly, they often ignore or miss the context of what they think is a contradiction. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. Third, they sometimes take New Testament references uh, to the Old Testament as quotes when in fact they are summaries or they are paraphrases of the Old Testament. And so when they compare one to the other, they say, well, see, it's inconsistent, but not at all. Number four, they may point out uh, num numbers of differences between, number of differences between accounts of the same incident, not realizing that one author may be rounding off figures for example, in the Old Testament, the prophecy is that the people of God will be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. But Paul in the book of Galatians says was 430 years. And so critics of the Bible say, well, see, here's an inconsistency. But in fact, in the one case, there was a rounding off of the numbers. It wasn't intended to be precise. But in the New Testament, Paul gives us the precise number. Number five, they often judge the Bible by modern technical standards when it speaks the common language of ordinary people at the time of its writing. 
Why are there, in some cases, such diverse opinions, though, from Bible believers about what the Bible says, about people who love God, about people who, who are Christians, who are Christ followers? Why are there, in some cases, such diverse opinions? And it brings me to the main point that I want to bring to you today, and that is what God says is truth. And how we interpret what He says is vital. What God says is truth. How we interpret what God says is the vital thing. Now, there are different schools of interpretation. People who look at the Bible differently. For example, there's the allegorical school of interpretation. These folks look for hidden meanings in the words. This is a favorite way to interpret the Bible for the Roman Catholic Church. In addition, of course, they have other sources of authority that they follow. But when they come to the Bible, they often look at it allegorically. They don't take it literally. The problem with this is that the meaning then is left to the fancy of anyone's imagination. Allegories themselves are legitimate figures of speech. One of the high schoolers was using some sarcasm this morning. Well, that, that is a legitimate figure of speech. So is an allegory. For example, we this morning sang a, a song calling Jesus the Lamb. Does Jesus have four feet and bah like a lamb? Of course not. It's an allegory. It describes something about Jesus. We, we talk about the church being a bride or a temple. These are allegories. They're legitimate. But allegorism, meaning that we approach the whole Bible with that way of looking at it, is not a legitimate method of interpretation. Because in the end, who's to say what it means if everything is an allegory? And then there's the liberal school of interpretation, which subjects Scripture to human reasoning and human experiences. This is the way that liberal churches and denominations, humanists in general, look at the Bible. The problem is that it cuts the heart of the supernatural out of God's truth because if it doesn't fit within a what man can reason or what man has experienced, they throw it out. God wants us to use our minds we do interpret the Bible in light of our experiences. These things affect how we understand the Scriptures, but the Bible is above our human reasoning and our experiences. We interpret those in light of what God says, not the other way around, like the liberal school of interpretation. Now, there's a third school of interpretation called the literal school. This is the one that I belong to and this church does and most of you do. The idea in literal interpretation is that we need to discover what the author intended the meaning to be. That's the purpose. I'm not looking for hidden meanings in the words. I'm trying to see what the author intended to say there. And so the words and the sentences are interpreted in their usual and customary way. I began my message time this morning telling you that Campbell Soup has changed the labels 
Did you take that literally? No, of course not, because you understood that I was telling a joke. Don't go out looking for potatoes in the field to be cooked. You'll be surprised. They aren't. Because, you see, you interpreted what I said for what it was. It was humor. Maybe poor, but it was an attempt, right? <laughs> you, you understood the context of that. You took it in the usual and customary way for that kind of a story. But now let's suppose you get the newspaper out and you begin to read the news. Do you take that as humor? No, you... <laughs> Sometimes. You go to the funny pages. Do you take that seriously? Right. Sometimes. I know. I, I, can, I can see this coming, right? You go to the editorial page. What do you do? You, you either weep or you get angry, one or the other here in San Jose. Well, you see, you, you learn to interpret things in the usual and customary way in which it's intended by the author, and that's what literal interpretation means. Now. Today, in our world, when people say they believe in the literal interpretation of the Bible, all kinds of bells and whistles and flags go off. Oh, you're one of those people, you believe in the literal interpretation of the Bible? President uh, uh, Bush was attacked for this during the last campaign, you may recall. There was an attempt to undermine his credibility and his worthiness by saying he believes in the literal interpretation of the Bible. Can you imagine having somebody in the Oval Office with their finger on the nuclear button who believes that the Bible should be taken literally? Oh my, how terrible. The problem here is that many people fail to understand what literal interpretation means. And so today I want to talk to you about principles of literal interpretation. The story is told about two friends, one of whom went to college and was well-educated and had become very successful. And the other had not gone to college, had not been particularly industrious, but he too seemed to be doing well. And so the one who was the college graduate asked his less educated friend, well, how's everything going with you? And this less educated, less ambitious man said to him, well, <clears throat> one day I opened my Bible just at random and I dropped my finger on a page. And then I lifted my, my finger up and underneath my finger was the word oil. And so I went out and I invested in oil. And oh my goodness, the oil wells just gushed. And so I decided to try the same method again. I went out and I, I put my finger on the Bible and I looked underneath my finger and it was the word gold. And so I invested in gold and those mines really produced. I have become as rich as a movie star. A successful friend was so impressed with this method of using the Bible that he rushed back to his hotel, he opened the drawer, got out the Gideon Bible, he flipped it open, shut his eyes, dropped his finger in. And then he opened his eyes to see what was under his finger, and right under his finger were the words, chapter 11. <laughs> what do we mean by literal interpretation of the Bible? That's what we need to find out this morning. 
So bear with me as we work our way through these principles of interpretation. The first one is the principle of accuracy. The principle of accuracy. There are some things we need to consider when we come to a text of the Bible. First of all, we need to be sure we understand what the language is really saying. This means we need to get some tools, some Bible study tools perhaps, or a good study Bible that will help us understand the grammar or the definitions or even the structure of the language. I remember reading an article years ago in a newspaper in Ohio about a man who was a Christian and he was uh, uh, protesting a law regarding union bargaining. And he said the Bible is against it because the Bible says there should be no striker. Now, if you've read the King James Bible, you know that those two words are put together in Timothy. No striker. But it's not talking about union bargaining. You need to go back and check what that word striker really means before you come up with that kind of a crazy interpretation. Galatians chapter 6. In verse 2 it says, Bear ye one another's burdens. Three verses later it says, Every man shall bear his own burden. Bear one another's burdens. Every man will bear his own burden. Doesn't that seem inconsistent? It's a contradiction there, isn't there? Go back and check the words. And most of the more contemporary translations have picked up on this and they interpret it so that it, it's not confusing. But the point is, be accurate before you decide what the interpretation is. Look, look at the history. Find out what was happening in the larger scene when Jeremiah wrote those words or when Isaiah gave that prophecy. Understand something of the history. Look at the culture. I don't need to tell you that the Bible was not written in Western civilization. It was not written in the 21st century. And so we need to understand something of the culture of that day when the author wrote it. Look at the geography. In the Bible, it warns about in the last days the king of the north and the king of the south. Does that mean that we need to beware of Canada and of Mexico? Well, maybe, to be honest, but that's another sermon. But the geography of the Bible, when it talks about north and south, it's talking about north of Palestine, not north of San Jose. It's talking about what's south of Palestine. Understand the geography. The point is, what did the author mean by these words? Sometimes you hear people say, well, uh, here's what it means to me. And, and folks, there's nothing wrong with that because we all are trying to interpret the Bible, but the key question is not what does it mean to me. The key question is what did it mean to the author when he wrote those words? And once I understand what he meant by it, then I can see how it applies to my life, to my situation, to my world. Second principle, the principle of accommodation. First, the principle of accuracy, but now the principle of accommodation, which says that God is speaking his truth in man's terms, in human terms. He uses expressions that you and I can identify with and grasp. 
I mean, after all, God is so different than we are that if he didn't do that, there's no way we could comprehend his truth. And so he accommodates himself to us. For example, he speaks in his word about his hand, the hand of the Lord. It speaks about the face of the Lord. It speaks about the arm of the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that God has a face, a hand, an arm. God is spirit. He doesn't have those features about himself, except as he is incarnate in Christ. But those are are words that accommodate to our understanding that God is active. God is watching. God is guarding. God is attacking. The principles of accommodation. Principle of accommodation. Number three, the principle of progressive revelation. When I seek to interpret the Scripture, I need to understand that God has revealed His truth little by little over a span of time. So that when I look into the Bible at one particular point, before I seek to understand what God is saying in that verse about that idea, I need to be sure that I have a, an understanding of all that God says about that idea. Because when I'm back here somewhere or up here somewhere, I need to know what the rest of Scripture says. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. A little here, a little there. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, which is a way of saying that God has now fully and finally spoken. So I need to understand the the principle of progressive revelation if I'm going to interpret Scripture literally. And then, fourthly, there's the principle of unity. That is that every passage of Scripture has but one meaning. And that meaning must be consistent with the whole of Scripture. You say, well, if every passage has one meaning and you have three people with three different meanings, who has the right one? Well, if you're one of the three, of course, that answers the question, right? No. The fact is, all three of them could be wrong. But every passage of Scripture has only one meaning. And that one meaning will fit with all of the rest of Scripture. That's what Paul was saying to Timothy. Make it all fit. Cut it straight so that you don't end up in your understanding of the Bible with these huge gaps that things just don't come together. The principle of unity. The story is told about the devil who was walking along the road with one of his cohorts one day, and as they were walking along, they saw a human being in front of them, a man, pick up a shiny object. And the devil's cohort said, well, what did he find? And the devil said, he found a piece of the truth. 
And the cohort of the devil said, well, well, doesn't it bother you that he found a piece of the truth? And the devil replied to him, no, I'll see to it that he makes a religion out of it. You see, and so often that happens. People have a piece of the truth. And around that piece of the truth, they build a structure of belief that is inconsistent with the rest of the Scriptures. Beware of getting just a piece of the truth. Understand it in its whole. You say, well, that that takes time. (laughs) It does. You say, well, I'm just a new believer. How can I possibly then understand the Scripture? Grow. Be discipled. Get somebody else who's further down the road from you and, and ask them to help you get caught up. This is not something that takes a Well, it does take a lifetime in one sense. But the fact is you can understand the whole of Scriptures in a relatively short period of time in the big picture of things so that you can interpret correctly. And then, fifthly, there is the principle of context. The point here is check the environment of what you're interpreting. Seek to discover the meaning in that environment. The point is is this. I have a little bit of an illustration to show you. You start out with one verse of the Bible. And that's the verse you're you're focusing on, let's say. Now, if you're going to interpret that verse, you need to look at the immediate neighborhood of that verse, which we call the, the paragraph. Most Bible translations have some sort of paragraph structure that are, are, are given to it. And so look at the larger paragraph. Who's talking here? Where is this happening? What is being talked about here in this paragraph? And when you think you understand that paragraph, then go to the next level and look at it in the context of the book. Okay, so this is uh, from the Gospel of Matthew, and, and let's see, Matthew talks especially about Jesus as the King, and so uh, here's how this verse can be understood in the context of Matthew. And then, folks, it's helpful if you take it to another realm, and, and let me just use the word, look at it in the context of its dispensation. That is, With whom is God dealing in the world? Uh, What is the covenant that's involved here in in this relationship that I'm looking at between Noah and God, for example? Or between Abraham and God? Or between you and God? Now, here's one of the, the big issues today in our culture and the fear that people have of those of us who take the Bible literally. Turn with me to the book of Leviticus, chapter 20. Leviticus, chapter 20, and we will look at verse 13. It says, If a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman... Both of them have done what is detestable. They must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Have you ever heard this verse quoted? 
in the culture today. Very commonly used. You can't go to the Bible and what it says about homosexuality. Well, if you take the Bible literally, you'll be stoning homosexuals. You say, oh my goodness, yes, I guess I would be. So are, are you put off by that? As one who interprets the Bible literally, you shouldn't be. You shouldn't be. Because if you interpret the Bible literally, you're following the principles we're talking about this morning. All of them apply to this verse that we've talked about. Be sure you understand the language. Is God accommodating himself here in some way to us? And so forth. And then we come to context. And so we stop and we think. And we ask ourselves, well, is this written to the church today? And the answer is no, it's not. You see, as we look at this in the context of the book, we understand that this is a paragraph and a book that deals with regulations for the people of Israel as they would establish a theocracy 3,000 years ago. And in the context of that, this is what God says. But notice he not only says that about homosexuals, he says that about someone in verse 10 who commits adultery with another man's wife. If a man sleeps with his father's wife, if a man sleeps with his daughter-in-law, he even says in verse 9, if anyone curses his father or mother, he must be put to death. So how literal do we want to be? We want to be literal. But remember, literal means that we use this principle of context. And so we remember that this was not written to the church. This was written to another people, another time. God was relating to the people of Israel under the covenant of the law. We are not related to God under the covenant of the law. We are related to God today under the covenant of grace. We are not Israel. We're a part of the church. So you say, well, then we just throw the whole thing out? Oh, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. In the New Testament, the moral standard represented here is repeated for the church. God still calls it sin, but God never, never authorizes the church to carry out capital punishment. I felt like it a couple of times in my life in ministry. God has never authorized that. Because you see, right now he's working on the invisible kingdom of the heart. Someday he will establish a visible kingdom and reign in the world. So you see, what we take from Leviticus 20 is the moral standard, the moral definition that God does give there, and he repeats in the New Testament for all time. But he never authorizes the carrying out of capital punishment for that sin in the age, the dispensation in which we live. So you see how that works? 
As a person who literally interprets the Bible, you can't go back to Leviticus 20 and demand the death penalty for these kinds of actions because you believe in the literal interpretation of the Bible and the principle of context. And then after you've looked at the, the dispensation, is this written to Israel? Is this written to me? You need to, to remind, remind yourself of this, that all of the Bible is for me, but not all of the Bible is to me. Do you understand that? In other words, what's written in the Old Testament is for my instruction, my example, and my learning. I need to go there. It's for me, but it's not to me. What's especially to me is the New Testament because that's the, the, the covenant, the new covenant by which I am related to God. And after you've looked at all of that, then look at the whole Bible and say, well, how does this verse fit into the whole of Scripture and what I know about God? To be very honest with you, uh, one of the reasons that I, for years now, have not been able to support Bill Gothard and the Institute of Basic Youth Conflicts is because of the failure on the part of that ministry to apply principles like these to their interpretation of the Scriptures, which has led them in some cases, not in every case, but in some cases, to really miss the mark and to teach some bizarre things. How we interpret the Bible makes a huge difference. And this morning I've talked to you about five of these principles. There are more that we could talk about, but these are five big ones. What God says is truth, and how we interpret it is vital. You say, well, it sounds to me like a lot of work, really, to do this. And the fact is, of course, yes, it is. It is work. Show yourself a workman, a workman who is approved and not ashamed. I can come to the word of truth and put together stuff that I say I believe and end up being ashamed of it because it just simply is a mishmash. It doesn't fit together. In one church, we, we had a, a, a gentleman who had come to the Bible and had he was, quote, self-taught, and I admired his study habits, but he had come up with this bizarre combination of doctrines that simply did not fit, and he wanted desperately to be a teacher in our church, but he couldn't be, because though he had studied, he had not studied rightly and could not be approved. It is work. It is work. And when I come up with my interpretation, I need to, to keep an open ear to others as well. Let me just finish up by saying this. By applying these principles, a follower of Jesus can, number one, be humbly confident of what the truth is. Now, we are being intimidated these days by our culture that says, you can't really know what the Bible means. So just keep it out of the conversation. That's baloney. You can be confident of what the truth of God is, but there's always space for humility in that because no one has a perfect grasp of all the truth. I was in a pastor's meeting one time and a person got up and asked 
Dr. John MacArthur, who is not known for having few convictions or light convictions, right? Uh, and asked him, well, is there any place that you're wrong? Oh, boy, there's a, a loaded question. John answered it beautifully. He said, you know, I very well may be. But if I knew where it was, I would change it. Isn't that true of all of us? So he's confident about what the truth says. And you need to be confident about what the truth says, but with humility. You don't have to be indecisive and uncertain about what the Bible means. Study it. And when you've applied these principles of literal interpretation, then be confident, but always with an open mind to learn from somebody else. Secondly, by applying these principles, you as a follower of Jesus can be graciously bold to stand for the truth. There has never been a time in history, perhaps, when there was more of a need for people of God to stand for the truth. This is no place and time in history for timidity. God calls you and me to publicly and graciously be courageous to represent the truth in our world. And so if you know the truth, don't be intimidated. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be reticent to stand up for the truth. But don't be a jerk about it. Some people can be so obstinate and mean-spirited that you're embarrassed to run around with them. Thirdly, by applying these principles, you as a follower of Jesus can be genuinely caring to share the truth with others. You see, God teaches you and me the truth so that we can then impart it to others. He does not give us the truth for, so that we can get really smart and keep it for ourselves. It is too eternally vital for others. And so we need to look in our sphere of influence and say, God, who needs this truth today? To whom can I share this little tidbit that I have from your word and understand and believe and accept with all of my heart and pass it along? Look in your world and discover where people are on that evangelism scale that we used last spring. Remember that? from the minus side down here all the way up to conversion and then beyond, find out where they are and on that scale and seek in sharing with them some truth that will move them along a notch at a time. Let the Holy Spirit be your partner in that. What God says is truth. What God says is truth. The consequences for failing to follow the truth are enormous and potentially eternal. Potentially eternal. I can go up in an airplane and decide that the law of gravity does not apply to me. I can say I'm above and beyond that. I have evolved as a creature to the point that the law of gravity no longer applies to me. But all the time there's this truth out here about the law of gravity, right? But I can be so convinced and so ignorant that I would ignore the truth and step out of the airplane. The consequences are enormous. 
And so it is morally and spiritually with God's truth. You and I can say, it doesn't mean that. You and I can say, it's obsolete. It's for another age. It's for another day. And we can battle with the Bible. We can say it isn't true. But my friend, the Bible is God's truth. It is God's truth. And if we fail to follow it, there are enormous and potentially eternal consequences in our lives. It's important we understand it. It's important that we practice it. Let's pray. Well, Father, I pray that you will take these words this morning that deal with how to understand your word and motivate all of us to be even better students of it. I pray that we will apply the principles that we've learned this morning, that we will be humble and gracious with what we do with it and how we understand it. I pray that you will make us men and women of the truth, and may we share it, may we stand for it in our culture, and thus represent you well. In Jesus' name, amen.